Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Religion podcast. I am J.A. Graham, and this is episode 35 of the History of Christianity series titled Iconoclasm. Last time we touched on the iconoclast issue, and today we will try to dive deeper into this issue and see how it led to the seventh and final ecumenical council. In 711, the Byzantine Emperor Justinian II died. Now, after his death, he had set the empire on good terms with Rome. The Pope even had come and visited Constantinople. He was the last Pope to do so, until Pope Paul VI visited Istanbul in 1967. So what happened? Well, part of it was the instability that followed Emperor Justinian II. There were six emperors within 20 years. Even though iconoclasm is often credited to Islam, that may not be the entire story. Iconoclasm literally means the smashing of icons. Icons were forbidden in Islam and the new Islamic empires had much more influence on Byzantium than on the rest of Christendom. Emperors like Leo III, who in 717 ordered the destruction of icons in the empire, were raised in Anatolia, which was highly influenced by Islam. Yet, there were other trends in the church at the time. One was the old Monophysite idea that Jesus has only one nature, which was divine. So they were not too keen on drawing Jesus as human, in 2D or 3D. Thus, the idea of iconoclasm was not new and was gaining influence in the Byzantine Empire. Icons had been growing in popularity for centuries. By the beginning of the 8th century, icons were being worshipped in their own right in many places. There was even a trend that icons were made the godparents of children at baptism. So there were many who saw icons as a danger to Christianity. All of these influences combined probably swayed Leo to go after the icons. In 725, he preached sermons against the iconoduels, or icon worshippers. Then in 725, he destroyed the largest icon in the empire. It was an icon of Jesus in gold above the doors of the imperial palace. The crowds attacked those in charge of destroying it. Armies and navies mutinied over it, so it was a big deal. Cities like Ravenna went into open revolt from the empire, but all of this didn't faze Leo, and he kept going after the icons. In 730, he declared war on all of the icons. The monks in the east had hordes of icons, and they did not let them go so easily. They began to flee into the deserts and go west. The pope at the time was Gregory II. He was in favor of icons and wrote a letter to the emperor telling him to let those qualified deal with the church. So Leo sent ships to go capture the Pope and hold him hostage as other Eastern emperors had done before him. However, the ships didn't make it and Gregory died. The new Pope was even more against iconoclasm, so the East and the West were now dividing hard. The Pope declared that everyone who destroyed the icons were excommunicated. Leo decided to respond by taking bishoprics from Rome in the Balkans and putting them under Constantinople. The next emperor was another iconoclast, but his brother overthrew him for 16 months and restored icons. Yet, he was then overthrown and blinded. So the empire was going back and forth in the War of Icons. The monks suffered the most. Many were killed, flogged, stoned, mutilated, and more for their love of icons. One leader in the empire decreed that all of the monks and nuns had to marry or be shipped off. The beards and libraries of the monks who loved icons were burned as well. In the west, the pope was all alone. The emperor had gone after the office of the pope since all of the popes would not submit to the imperial rule and the emperor had focused on the eastern provinces of the Byzantine Empire that were under the attack of the Muslims. The result was that the Italian peninsula fell to the Lombards because there were not enough soldiers to protect it, and the population there was upset with the emperor for iconoclasm. 
This forced popes to begin to look for others in order to protect them, since the Byzantines seemed to have abandoned them. Pope Stephen II was the pope to find the new protector. In France, there were those called the Franks, who were becoming a powerhouse in the West. In 754, Pope Stephen II went to France and crowned Pepin the Short the king of the Franks. In return, Pepin went into Italy and conquered the Lombards. He then gave all of the lands and power to the pope, Pope Stephen II. A new power dynamic had risen in the West, in the vacuum left by the East becoming ever more focused on the Muslim invaders. In Byzantium, the focus for the church was on icons still. The emperor held the power to dictate whether icons were legal or not in the empire, and the tide of iconoclasm ebbed and flowed with the changing rulers. This is a very important aspect of the East in Byzantium. The emperor had control over the patriarchy in Constantinople. So essentially, it was the emperor who was the theological final say in the matters. One of these rulers until 780 was Leo IV, who was not a big fan of icons either, but he married a psychotic Athenian woman who was in favor and in love with icons. Her name was Irene, and she was from the start nothing but trouble for the emperor Leo. It is rumored that she was chosen out of a parade of eligible women, which would have been the first instance of such a thing in Byzantium history. She was known to be beautiful, but crazy. So many a fella can relate to that, O oh Leo. Leo had been a moderate with his policy towards icons, but a story goes about Irene that set him off. The story is that Leo found icons under Irene's pillow. Up until this point, he had been allowing monks to come back who had been found guilty of icon worship. But this brought the icons too close to home for Leo. He had those who were blamed by Irene for sneaking the icons into their bedroom, tortured and killed, and then he cracked down on icons hard. The story is likely fabricated after the fact, but the result was the same, in that 780 Leo began persecuting the iconoduels harshly. Then he died in September of 780, and Irene seized power. Irene had slowly been filling the palace with iconophiles. After the death of Leo, she put an end to iconoclasm in the east. At the same time, she had been seeking relations with the Western empires in order to solidify her rule. She turned to Rome to get additional support first. She called for a church council to meet to, in order to condemn iconoclasm once and for all. In 786, delegates from Rome arrived and they met in Constantinople and it looked like iconoclasm was done with. However, when the council began, it was interrupted by soldiers who busted through the doors and broke up the icon party. The Roman delegates were horrified and they left for Rome. The West had basically ignored the icon issue. The Byzantines would decree that icons were heresy, but the West never really got the memo. Irene cracked down on the soldiers who had come in and disrupted the icon party and had them expelled from the empire and put iconoduels in their place. So then in 787, another council was called and the Roman delegates came back. This time, there were no interruptions. The council condemned iconoclasm and said that icons were allowed. They used John of Damascus's theological work to explain how icons could be venerated, or dulia, but they couldn't be worshipped, or latria. This caused some confusion in the West, where most did not speak Greek, but they eventually got on board and Christianity accepted the veneration of icons in the Seventh Ecumenical Council called the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. 
This was the last of the seven ecumenical councils that are considered binding on all Christians. Of course, when the Protestants arrive, they will protest much of this. But overall, the first seven ecumenical councils form the core theological beliefs of the world's Christians. It took almost 800 years for the Christian theology to be solidified at its core. There are many more disagreements to come, and many Christians that will argue that the core of Christianity was not fully addressed in the councils. Yet, the seven ecumenical councils are a trunk from which all the branches of Christianity go out from. The council had somewhat reunified the East and West for a time as well. Irene was on a roll, and she intended to keep it up. Her next step was to continue to reach out to the West. So, again, looking to the West, there were some other major developments. In Rome, Pope Leo was in a pickle. He had been accused of simony, or selling the church positions for money, perjury, and adultery. But who could be the judge of the Vicar of Christ? Pope Leo needed outside help. The only person who would traditionally be able to provide help was the Emperor of Byzantium, but that was a woman at this time. And although Irene was more politically savvy than most in her time, she was still a woman. It did not seem to bother the Pope that she was a murderer and a liar, but the woman empress disqualified her from judging the Vicar of Christ. So Pope Leo needed someone else. Then comes in Charles the Great from France. He had created a Frank empire over 30 years of rule. We are not completely sure about the dealings between Charles and Leo, but on December 23, 800 AD, Pope Leo swore that he was innocent of the perjury, the adultery, and the simony, and apparently that was somehow enough for everyone to just drop their claims against him. Then, two days later, Pope Leo crowned Charles the Great, now Charlemagne, the emperor of the Romans in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, you may be thinking, why and how? Well, the why is because Charles wanted political recognition in order to gain more power in the West and have bargaining power in the East. The Pope needed to shore up his power in the papacy. So, the Pope now has power to crown emperors, while Charles is now the emperor of the Romans after 400 years of absence in the West. But how? Well, this is where it gets interesting. The Middle Ages is renowned for just making shit up and no one having the ability to fact check it. So Pope Leo said that there was a thing called the Donation of Constantine. According to this theory of the Donation of Constantine, Constantine retired diplomatically to Byzantium when he built Constantinople, leaving his crown in Rome. Then he gave the power and authority to the Pope in order to crown whoever the Pope saw fit to be emperor. Of course, this is all false. But they produced a document for it, and no one argued against it. It then became the basis by which the Pope had the power to crown kings for the next 600 years in Europe. Now, Charlemagne did not want to be the pawn of the Pope, though. At the same time, Irene had backed herself into a corner politically in the East and needed to save her own skin. The result was that in 802, Charlemagne sent ambassadors to Constantinople to discuss whether a marriage could be formed to unite Christendom under one rule once again. This is a major what-if moment in history, because a united Christendom may very well have rolled over the other empires of the world with ease. But it is only a what-if. Christendom remained separated. The West became concerned with feudal kingdoms, and the East concerned with an encroaching Muslim empire. These two dynamics will play out more fully in the centuries to come, with the Crusades as their climax. Before we get to those, though, we will cover some other major developments in Christendom. So join me next time when we do just that, here on the History of Religion podcast.